interviewing someone not too long ago and she was just like wait are we is this a show and we're like yeah this is a show this is it right here <laughs> hey everyone gomer here and we have a doozy of a show for you today one of the leading experts in okay i'm just gonna say it in liturgy yeah you know what i'm a dog with a bone i like talking about liturgy now even though i never liked talking about it before because all people ever do is yell and so now I'm talking to the guy, the guy who's the editor of the Adoramus Bulletin, which is one of the main voices out there actually advocating for a reverent Novus Ordo when everyone else is losing their minds around the Latin Mass and all this other stuff. So here, let me give you some information about uh, good old Dr. Christopher Karstens. He's a director of the Office of Sacred Worship in the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. He's a visiting faculty member at the L uh, Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake in Mundelein, Illinois. Yes, the Mundelein. Editor of the Adoramus Bulletin, which I already said. One of the voices of the Liturgy Guys podcast, which is a great podcast. He has a couple books out. Devo uh, a Devotional Journey into the Mass. A Devotional Journey into the Mystery. The Easter Mystery. And the book that I bought all of my evangelization department folks. Principles of Sacred Liturgy. Forming a Sacramental Vision. He lives in Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin with his wife and eight children, and the man has a mustache like you wouldn't believe and a beard so fine and handsome you would think it was made out of cashmere. We got some good podcasts lined up for you. Dr. Larry Chap's going to come back. We're going to talk about atonement theology, but that of Hans Uz von Balthasar. Um, we're going to talk about some other stuff. You know, we got some stuff going. It is exhausting trying to do this in the summertime. But now that it's almost August, I can breathe a little bit easier before the insanity of kickoff begins with the good folks at uh, at my parish. So, yeah. Hope you enjoy. Two sponsors today, BetterHelp.com slash Foxes and Net Ministries. And, uh, yeah, really hope you guys can check out our sponsors. All right. Without further ado, Christopher Karstens. Yeah. So, I mean, so this is the deal. Like, I love the liturgy. Um, it really was, Father David just said, like, if you think of heaven, the sanctuary as the symbol of heaven, and everything flows towards it, w does it make sense to slap um, uh, an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion in the back of the church by the exit, just so we can cut communion lines quicker? And like, if I'm processing towards heaven, what does that say about going backwards towards the exit. And I started, I was like, oh, that's so over the top. But then I realized half the people that do that yeah. get their to-go bag of Jesus and then yeah. they just leave. Yeah, yeah. And so it began this kind of inward searching mm -hmm. like, oh, I've concentrated on, um, you know, an apologetics and theology of the sacraments, but I never, because I don't want to deal with the liturgy wars. Mm -hmm. I think we're so exhausted from them, you know? Yeah. No, it's, uh, what that reminds me of is a story that, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a liturgical institute alum, and he's a priest of Tulsa. And he, I don't think he'd mind me saying his name as a father, Father Grant. And uh, he said when he was a kid, his dad told him, he said, John, you know, heaven is going to be just like mass. And he said, he just started weeping. <laughs> just started crying. <laughs> what? Going to heaven is going to be like going to mass every Sunday? No, no, uh, no. So he's, uh, uh, he, he's come around from that way of thinking. But, um, right, but, but it's so true. I mean, uh, to, to go to mass or any liturgy, but especially the mass, is to be sort of this, this breakthrough of heavenly divine glory uh, into this, uh, through these material 
earthly things to 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 let us bask in the radiance of uh, of God. It's like going to mass should be like going to Mount Tabor for fifty five minutes on a on a sunny morning. But unfortunately, because we don't do it as well as we ought, it's not like that. And so, yeah. It's no wonder people think, well, I can I can skip that if that's if that's all it is. So anyway. Yeah. What's that line from Chesterton where he talks about um everyone agrees on what we call evil, but not everyone agrees on what evils we call excusable? Something pithy hmm. like that. Hmm. And it's funny because when we talk about what you just said, see, I I find that this is one of the sticking points with people in liturgy is and it drives us all insane is we all agree, okay, maybe not we all, but many people agree we should be doing liturgy well. But everyone has a different definition Ah. of what well is. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, um, a famous line a buddy of mine said, you know, I I don't care what kind of music is offered as long as it's good. Mm -hmm. And then you got another buddy of mine who says, well, I don't care if it's good or not as long as it's sacred. And then they start fighting each other, and I just sit back and drink beer and wonder (laughs) what's happening to the church today. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, um, you know, but it, I suppose the thing with like uh, secular or cultural art, you know, I mean, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, we've been, we've been raised to express yourself, right? That's what's good. Uh, It's whatever you want it to be. Well, when you step out of an environment like that, that we've all been swimming in since we've been born into the world of the church, the parameters change, and it's not up to you or the the Dawson liturgy director or your pastor. It's there's an objective truth and goodness and beauty that uh, is the norm, is the standard, and it's you know up to us to conform ourselves to that good. And you know that's that's a difficult thing to do. So. Uh, yeah, whether it's uh, architecture, music, preaching, vestments, whatever it is, um, it's uh, it, 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 it's a different animal, the liturgy, because there's something above us and beyond us that transcends us, that sets the bar for us to conform to. And, you know, that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it makes it even more difficult when you add all these things of just modernity, like uh, democracy. Right? Like we tend to want our liturgies to reflect opinion polls and surveys and to keep the people happy and all this stuff. And I remember one time we used to have people who would just sit at mass with stopwatches on a Sunday mass at all the masses and be like, well, this takes too long. We can shave off a minute here. Father, if you just cut your homily down three points instead of five, you know, and all of these things. And that was very much my opinion, too. I was right there with him being like, oh, my goodness. Why can't we make the lectors sit right next to the ambo so they just pop up, do the reading, moonwalk yeah. out of there? Oh, wait, you mean like, we're going to have a baptism during Mass? Oh, no. <laughs> 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 what do I pay you for, Father? Um, I mean, gosh, I've, I've, I've heard that line. I have given so much money, dot, dot, dot. And you're like... Oh, it is easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than it is to enter the kingdom of heaven, or a camel to pass through it, or a rich man to pass through an eye of a needle while we're at it. But, uh, like, it's funny because we we are raised in a culture where I get my vote, and my my vote counts, and if I give more money, then that counts even more, or if I'm more, if I'm more of a volunteer, you know, I might not be wealthy, but I might be a super active parishioner, or I'm a founding member. We have a young church, so we get a lot of people who are, you know, my family included, who are founding members who think that they run the church more than the pastor. And 
Um, and then you have different pastors with different flavors. And like I was at a mass recently, there was only about 10 of us and it was at, um, it wasn't in a, in a church, normal church setting. And the priest was reading some part of the Eucharistic prayer and he made sure to constantly make eye contact with everyone that was there. And I was just like, you're not praying to me, buddy. Like, why are we doing this? I feel really uncomfortable right now. Shouldn't you be talking to that guy? Like, what's going on? So it's like you got everyone's vote, everyone's personal thing, everyone's timetable. How do we deal with the drama at a, at a, at a typical, this is my thing, at a typical parish setting yeah. where 80% of the congregation goes maybe once a month? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think that a large part of the problem is not a ritual problem. It's a, it's, mm. it's a people problem. It's mm. a me problem. What's wrong with the world, uh, Mike? I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Good chest. And, there. Uh, you know, and you know, the, the liturgical movement figures um, of, of the 20th century understood this a lot. You know, Gardini would say in this very famous letter that he writes to this uh, liturgy conference in 1964, Right, so this, the conference is still going on, right? All this great energy around the Second Vatican Council, and he and they've just promulgated uh, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy uh, the year before. He writes this letter that says, "You can change the rites all you want to, okay, but unless people are aware of kind of the liturgical action and the dispositions that they need to have for entering into it." All the, the, the making around with, with rights is not going to help at all. And so I think the, the, uh, the fundamental thing, right, I suppose for any of us who, you know, hope for heaven, it's about us decreasing so God can, can increase. Uh, but I think people who are really interested in the liturgy uh, have, to, have to really cultivate a sense of humility and docility in wanting to be changed and wanting to become something that they are not at this moment. All those things that are, you know, the most, that are so difficult is kind of the fundamental attitude to going into a liturgy and to serve it well and to be able to pray it well and to soak up its graces. I mean, uh, what, you know, what happens when an unstoppable force like God meets an immovable object like me? Nothing, or at least nothing good. And so for God to work his, his saving power through the liturgy requires a great deal of uh, docility on my part. And, it, and this is, I think, I'm not pointing to those people out there who have this problem. Everybody walking in that church door has this problem to a greater or lesser degree. But um, th- that has to be, I, I think, a, a, it, it's a, an essential element for making liturgy work is that attitude. And now let's take a moment to talk to our friends over at BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include fatigue, lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, and more. Now let's be honest, many of us have been there, especially in the last two years. So what we need to do is recognize that maybe, just maybe, our lack of motivation isn't because we aren't getting enough cardio. (laughs) It might be because we are, in fact, burned out. We often associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out, and BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, online therapy wants to remind you to prioritize your own mental and emotional health. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. 
If this is you, if you feel trapped in your life in any way, I would wholeheartedly recommend you getting personal counseling. Therapy can help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 24 hours. Catching Foxes listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Foxes. Thanks to our friends over at BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. So in Sacrosanctum Concilium, it talks about that the sacred liturgy does not exhaust everything that it is to be Christian, right? And it, in fact, the church kind of presupposes that before we come into our, our liturgical worship that you have been evangelized, right? You, have, you know the good news. You have faith. And you have your own prayer life. Well, that exempts like 60% of most Catholics right there. Like how many Catholics have, can honestly say, I have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I believe in the dead and risen Lord as a, that phrase dead and risen Lord is used like 15 times in that reciprocity document. Mm-hmm. It always throws me off mm-hmm. dead and risen. Um, but right. Like how many people like honestly believe in the resurrection honestly believe that Christ instituted the Catholic church for the salvation of souls, right? And how many people on top of all of that have a prayer life, right? So if I don't have a devotional life and then I come into the liturgical worship and I don't know how to pray, yikes, like it's going to be so much. Now, obviously the majority of the liturgical action is done by Holy Mother Church through her minister, the priest, but still, right? Like (laughs) here I am and you know, a lot of people, they just get bored. The other day, I'll never forget, like, this is tattooed in my brain the other day. It was about a month ago. This uh, husband and wife, young couple, had a maybe a five-year-old in mass. They were sitting right in front of me. They were very sweet. And, you know, they obviously were Catholic. They knew how to do the things. Of, they were doing stand, sit, kneeling at the right time and singing the songs and doing all the stuff. So I'm like, okay, okay. They got a level of engagement. This is me judging everyone as mass is beginning. <laughs> Constantly, right? <laughs> I mean, not that I was, yeah, no, totally judging everyone, right? But then as soon as we sat down for the reading, she passed her kid her iPhone to play video games with the volume on, by the way, right in front of my kids who are just staring at screens. And I thought like, oh, oh no, oh no, this is going to be horrible. So like that, like that function, right? To be evangelized, to have a prayer life. So I don't know how to solve this except just to talk to people, right? Like I, so I'm like, hey, at the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, just got out of my liturgy meeting. Can I like do a talk on atonement theology? You know, who's going to come to that? The people who already care. So I'm like, how do I, how do I go from, where do we go from here? You know? Yeah. <sighs> just give me all the answers. Oh, is that? <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. This right now we're all Pelagian. You're going to tell me the six steps. To fix everything. Oh yeah. <laughs> if I were a heretic, I I I kind of caught into that into that camp, unfortunately. <laughs> um, well, you know, a couple of things, uh, you know, as you're talking that might come to mind is, you know, about the the necessity of a devotional life and a prayer life outside yeah. of the liturgy. That would actually, I think, solve a lot of liturgical problems for a couple of yeah. reasons. One is because, yeah, it 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 softens and opens your heart. Uh, for the graces that God's going to try to give you. But also, see, a lot of the, the liturgy wars, I think, um, you know, and I'm not saying there aren't, there aren't things to discuss, 
But a lot of them are because I want it this way and you want it that way. And he wants it this way. And that Pope wanted it that way. But this Pope wants it this way. Uh, is that the, it's the nature of the liturgy to kind of, again, um, uh, uh, satisfy everybody. And it does that by sort of removing itself. It's more objective and uh, uh, transcendent and ordered versus like your family's prayers are probably unique to your family only. There's probably some things we have in common. But um, th the devotional life is supposed to be tailored to each individual. The liturgy, on the other hand, is not. But when you don't have that devotional life, people come to the liturgy wanting the liturgy to satisfy that personal, unique desires that I have and you have. Anyway, but I think after the devotional question, which is a very important one, what do we do you know, to, to kind of help things. I think the only way to do it, or at least the first way to do it is everybody's going to agree to go to the books and they're going to leave their ideologies out of it. Uh, their pastors, their liturgy directors, uh, their whatever journals they read or podcasts they listen to. The starting place is going to be the books. And I think, um, I can adapt another uh, Chesterton line. Um, I think it's 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 not that the current liturgical books have been tried and found wanting. Rather, they have been found difficult and therefore left untried. And in the meantime, so we argue about being more traditional and progressive or left or right or backwards or forwards or whatever, but there's this great void right in the middle of the church's liturgical life that has yet to be tried to see if it works. So I think a return to the sources and a return to the books is a, is a great yeah. first start for getting our liturgy sort of back on track. And I suppose, Mike, if, if, if it's working at your parish, it's probably because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I sent you a link to the interview with my parochial vicar, Father David, and one of the things he kept saying was, you got to stop um, kind of making this fight of, you know, traditional Latin mass versus mass of Vatican II. He's like, we still haven't even seen the mass of Vatican II for the most part for most people. Like Sacrosanctum Concilium, the general instruction on the Roman Missal, like the stuff is there. People need to do it, but they're just not doing it. Instead, they're doing whatever some journal came out with or whatever some liturgist at the seminary was teaching, whatever was in vogue in the 70s when, you know, the current crop of older pastors were were in seminary. And that just became, you know, it, it is funny, that phrase for, again, everything's going to be Chesterton from here on out, because <laughs> I had to give a talk on Chesterton, I wasn't prepared. So I crammed while I was driving down an audiobook on triple speed. So uh, I have all these Chesterton quotes about, but it's like, uh, that notion of like, we don't know what we're doing, because we don't know what we're undoing kind of thing. Um, and also that other quote, what, what is that great quote? Um, everyone, who, I don't know if it's Chesterton, but you know, to be a to be wed to this age is to be a widow in the next. <sighs> like, Nothing has, I think, nothing shocks older priests more than when they find out that young people, especially teenagers, because again, my background's youth ministry, like they hate everything in the gather hymnal. They hate all of that like silly folk music. Like that to them sounds like the cheesiest of their parents' worst music, right? Like, and they're like, what are you talking about? On Eagle's Wings is the hip stuff. All the kids love it. And you're like, no. And it's funny because, like, the tastes change so rapidly that people don't even realize 
Like all that stuff that you fought for when you were a, a cool young seminarian with your long hair, like all that stuff is so old. It's like silly. Like it's not even like, yeah, I can kind of get it. It's just silly. Right. And so this, this movement towards like understanding. So, you know, the Pope came out with a new, what was an apostolic letter. Um, my pastor went to a conference at Notre Dame and they gave 10 key points and I just got them. And, you know, I read that letter the second it came out, I read through everything. Um, and there were things that like, I would love to see every rubric must be observed, but then you actually sit down and you start going through it and you're like, and I guess here's like my biggest problem right now is the rubrics presuppose a history, right? It presupposes a lived experience of the mass, of the tradition of the mass. This is why Pope, you know, for me, from a theological and biblical studies kind of perspective, like Cardinal um, or um, Pope Benedict always saying, you know, it's the hermeneutics of continuity, not a hermeneutics of rupture. But the problem is like, in my in my perspective, right, we have this living continuity of the Tridentine mass, and then we're doing this new thing. And the new thing can be interpreted either from that living tradition or as a new thing. And, uh, and I find that like a lot of people for the new thing, they want to get rid of the old thing altogether. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who were very influential in the sixties who, yeah, before we can establish the new mass, we've got to get rid of the old. And so that like living contribution, that living hermeneutic of continuity as like a lived reality is, is like scary to me because it's fallen away. And now all we have is the new thing. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah, but. no, I think uh, in some ways that um, I think uh, not, to, not to label camps, but uh, maybe you know, uh, uh, traditionalists and progressives agree that the relationship between the preconciliar and postconciliar rights have too little in common. Okay, mm-hmm. so the preconciliar, those who go to a preconciliar mass, um, say no, the, some. Some, not all. Some would say, no, there is such a rupture with the new rights that it's, you know, they've abandoned the tradition. Uh, And maybe some of the progressives uh, who are very uh, anti-extraordinary form or whatever it's called to say the same thing. No, we've made a clean break with that and we need to move on and leave some of those things behind. So they're kind of in agreement on that. But that sort of, I don't know, middle way is the right way to sue it. To, to say it, that the, that the council is read in continuity with the magisterium, with the church's life, with her worship, with her prayer is the, the, this proper hermeneutic, um, seems to me that, that just makes the most sense. So, yeah, I, that's, that, that's the interpretive key, I think. If, if you think the liturgy began in 1963, you're wrong. If you think it ended in 1963, yeah. you're wrong, too. They're, they go together. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Uh, Father Dave was talking about, you know, one of the things that you have to understand is you have to look backwards in order to understand the new liturgy because, I mean, like it said, talks about incensing the altar. And he goes, how do you know how to incense the altar? Well, that's in an old liturgical book, you know, like blah, 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 and whatever it was. And so he's talking about that and how to properly incense the altar. That's not even in the new books. It just assumes that you know it. And there's a lot of that that assumption. But I, I feel like for many people, they have no continuity with the past. Like when I talk with like my my um, my own parents, my wife's parents, their idea of the Latin mass is like, oh, my God, thank God we're done with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they were six or eight or whatever, and they all all the women remember Bobby pinning 
you know, Kleenexes to their head just mm. so they could go in because they forgot their chapel veils and stuff like that. But at the same time, um, so they don't have a living, like when they look at the new mask, they just, they see it as a whole cloth, new thing. So the, the problem is like getting them to understand the moment something, let me just use the word traditional comes in, like the ringing of the bells when a priest walks in or chanting the mass, not just singing songs at mass, but singing the mass, right? When that happens, the number, this is kind of funny, the number one complaint we got when our, our parochial vicar and then our pastor started chanting the Eucharistic prayers was like, they would all, like everyone said this, it was so funny. What is this, the 15th century? Everyone said that. One guy said, what is this, the 6th century? And I said, well, then it'd probably be still in Greek, even in Rome, and some, some Herman, you know, little, little nuance there. But no, um, but it was so funny because that's the reaction. It's a visceral disgust. And I'm like, but did, why are we self-hating? Like, can't we, can't there be both, right? Yeah, well, again, I think it goes to that disposition that, uh, you know, do, do we form the liturgy or does the liturgy form us? And that's the mechanics of the thing is you go in there yeah. not to to recreate God in your image. Is God's trying to restore the divine image in you. Uh, through this most privileged of means, which is uh, the liturgy. So, yeah, I mean, th- those types of comments sort of uh, reflect that. Um, and, and, you know, maybe there, there's, uh, right, there's been piles of liturgical confusion for decades. So, yeah. uh, I mean, it's no wonder people are confused about, you know, what the council said or what came before, or what's on the books today. Um, but, yeah, I mean, no, th- th- these things are, it's part of a living uh, tradition that the church has. And even, yeah, th- this is how we celebrate today in continuity with what came, uh, what came before. So yeah. if, if that's what you're into, the liturgy is, uh, is something you're going to like, but if not, then you're going to be displeased with it. Mm. Yeah. Whenever I started going to the Latin mass in high school, I, uh, you know, when the priest is saying the prayers silently, you know, I'm the guy in the back with the missile trying to like guess where he is. And I would say every word mm-hmm. you know, whenever I go to the ordinary at mass, um, you know, I fall cause it's, you know, it's such a different liturgy in so many ways, you know, I'm following along. Oh good. You know, okay. I'm here. We're here. And I'm like flipping through the missile like crazy. And I realize that not everyone does that. Not everyone is like that. When I go to the Novus Ordo, of course, you know, it's like a fish to water, obviously, because I was raised in it. So I, I don't need to follow along that closely. But I'm the guy now with the daily Roman Missal, and I got a mm. Bishop Barron's Liturgy of the Hours right. stuff. And I'm really enjoying the texts, right? And uh, no, I do not have a mistaken uh, failed vocation to the priesthood, although sometimes it seems that way. Uh, but, like, I love it. But I know that not everyone does. You know, not everyone can read, not everyone can follow along, not everyone likes to. So what is the church's vision of active participation mm-hmm. of just guy in the pew, right? I'm not, I don't have a job. I'm not a lector or a subdeacon. I wasn't a commissioned, uh, you know, EMHC or whatever. What do I do? What the church wants at the liturgy is for the people to actively participate in the Paschal mystery of Jesus, And the liturgy is what connects those two things. Uh, I always thought this was a really good sort of visual analogy. Think of uh, the creation of Adam by Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, right? So on the one hand, you have God. On the other hand, sort of literally, you have us. And in the beginning, they were fingertip to fingertip, okay? But sin pulls those apart. So Jesus steps into the gap as a medium, as a, a... 
a pontifex, a bridge builder, and reconnects the two of us. Something similar happens at the liturgy. On the one hand, you have God doing his divine and saving action. On the other hand, you have us. And what brings us face to face, or the etymology of adoration is is, is mouth to mouth. What brings us mouth to mouth to right. God is the rites of the church. So I suppose that's the first thing. What active participation is, is how do I, as a, a participant in the nave, join my prayers, works, joy, sufferings, life, everything I have to the paschal mystery of Jesus. I hope this is a helpful little tangent. We were reading a liturgical movement figure at a class at the Liturgical Institute past few weeks, uh, Louis Bouillet. It was on the cult of the mm, saints. Love Louis Bouillet. Okay. Yeah, me too. Me too. And he was talking about, basically was getting at the, the similarities between the Eucharist and martyrdom. And the gist of what he was saying is, if you really want to actively participate in the Paschal Mystery of Jesus, martyrdom is your route. <laughs> there is no, uh, no finer way, no more efficacious and fruitful way for you to actively participate in the life of Jesus than becoming a martyr. But if you're not ready for that yet. Be an usher. <laughs> you can always do it via the liturgy because through the signs and symbols and the rites of the mass, you come mouth to mouth with Jesus and his saving action. So how do you actively participate? I mean, I think that's the first thing is, is getting kind of recalibrating our minds and ears when we hear that term active participation and that it's a participation by me in the past, the death and resurrection of, or dying and rising, however that document says, of <laughs> dead and risen dead Lord. And risen Lord. <laughs> That's what it's about. And being an usher, a reader, an MC is, uh, is so secondary to that, that um, it shouldn't even enter into the picture. So, right, so, I mean, you work for a church, right? So you're, you're probably one of those that most masses you go to unless you're bringing your wife and kids, you've got something to do. You got to read something. You got to serve at mass. You've got uh, whatever yeah. it is. And those are good and necessary things. But isn't it true, Mike? You think, Oh, I just get to go to mass and pray for once. I don't have to worry about, mm -hmm. you know, how to say Shadrach, Meshach and Urbendigo, or when am I supposed to go <laughs> up or this, that, or the other thing. You can just go pray. And so true active yeah. participation is engaging in the saving work of Jesus through the rites of, uh, of the liturgy. The reality is that young people today are growing up in a largely post-Christian culture, making choosing the faith all the more difficult. A vast majority of Catholic youth are disconnecting from the church during their teenage years. Something clearly isn't working. Net Ministries is passionate about challenging young Catholics to love Christ and embrace the life of the church. That's why working alongside youth ministers, parishes, and schools, Net Missionaries help young people encounter the person of Christ through evangelization and discipleship. As a Net Missionary, you will meet young people who need to hear your particular story. Your journey with the Lord matters. You can be an example to young people of how to make the faith their own, allowing Christ to enter into their lives. Your story has a purpose. The Lord has a call for you. If you are between the ages of 18 and 28 and interested in serving the Lord as a net missionary, go to netusa.org apply and fill out an application. Not able to apply yourself? Share about NET's mission with a young adult in your life and encourage them to apply today. That's net, N-E-T, U-S-A dot org slash apply. 
Thanks to our friends over at Net Ministries for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. Yeah, it's funny because I've been a youth minister since 2005, and uh, one of the big things that I've always been, you know, kind of advocating for is to go to, like, be rooted in the local community of the church that you work at. And now I no longer think that, not because I don't like my church, I actually love, because this is the church where I was a, a high school student, where I got involved, where I did a lot of stuff and had conversion experiences, and it's just amazing, and I want to work for that and build that. But I get people in the middle of Mass after they've received Holy Communion, and I'm kneeling in prayer, will tap me on the shoulder and be like, hey, when is the signups for the youth ministry event? And I'm like, I will tell you after Mass, please leave. Um, you know, and then I get in squabbles with clergy, and then I see them up on the altar, and I'm like, oh, really? Oh, really? Well, thank God it's ex opere operato, or I'm going to have to kill this guy. Right? Like, you know, I have opinions. Man. I got opinions. And if you can't tell, when I'm in Mass, I'm just judging everyone all the time. So, uh, like a good little Catholic. Uh, so yeah. we moved, we moved, uh, on, on Holy Thursday, got keys to the new house. Cause that's a great idea to move <laughs> in this housing market. And, uh, it was beautiful. Actually, it was the most important financial decision we have ever made because we sold our house for so much more money than we owed on it. So I'm like, holy crap, we just paid off all of our debts in the worst housing market. This is the best. Um, but anyway, so this this ordinary parish that my friends go to, a lot of people go to, I started going there not because, you know, I didn't want to deal with liturgical shenanigans. And here is this austere ad orientum liturgy with more incense. You literally can't see the priest mm. when uh, at a high mass. I'm sitting there and I just realized no one bothered me about anything having to do with an event coming up for their kids or how do I enroll in the adult retreat this weekend or whatever. And I was like, that's nice. I can pray. And then I realized, Oh my goodness, if I'm being honest with myself, I'm really not previously praying at mass. I'm like distracted. And you know, it's not just that I have to do something. It's that I'm the guy that, you know, I'm a director here and that matters when you had a big church and you got all this hierarchy of a leadership team and all this, like I'm the guy with the keys to everything. So you run out of toilet paper and, you know, most people know to come to me, you know, <laughs> like, so it's this crazy thing where I can't catch my breath in a lot of this stuff. But then I realized like one day I'm sitting at mass at the, at the ordinary church and it's now going on two hours and I'm happy as a clam got there 30 minutes early. I have four kids, the youngest of six. They, it feels like they all have ADHD, um, to diagnose, but <laughs> And uh, they got it from their father. And I'm sitting there, and they're all quiet, obedient. You know, they're all at mass. And not one time. Now, of course, they're antsy kids, and they do, you know, fidget or whatever. I, and I remember hearing all these complaints and all this work I spent, like, how can I shorten mass? Where can we trim this? Where can we do this? Where can we get it just under 60 minutes, even though we have to give Holy Communion to 1,400 people? And that's literally the thing that takes the longest, especially when you do it under both species. I like, I didn't, no one cared that we were rounding two hours, right? And I was like, this is, this is nice. This is nice. So do you, do, do you advocate for that now? Like, hey, maybe you should go to a church and actually worship outside of the church where you actually work. <laughs> do you see the fruit of that or, or do you kind of both? You see the. So I'm, I'm in a very small rural parish with 80 families, like, and uh, uh, we're, we're, kind of limited on our, so my kids do the serving, my daughters and I do the singing and things like that. So it's, uh, I, whenever I go to the, uh, on the Sunday, I either have to, I'm either singing or I have to find somebody else to do it. But, um, but I, 
I imagine you cantering while doing the communion pattern <laughs> underneath, you know. <laughs> Give gifts so of finest wheat. Yeah, well, we're... We haven't sung that song at uh, St. Philip's for a little bit yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I do appreciate it at, at those times where you just get to go and pray, uh, and it's a uh, it's a remarkable thing. And you know, just hearing your your experience with your kids there, you know, going on two hours, uh, that remind me of a line that some figures said. You know, if, if kids are bored at mass, the parents are probably bored too. And the right. So we've tried all sorts of solutions to try to get people not yeah. bored. And most of them have not worked. But I think if you give them something that's uh, transcendent and mysterious uh, in the right way, uh, that um, that's that's the longing of the human heart. And it's filling a need that is just certainly not getting filled anywhere else. And that, I think, is the solution. And you didn't have to go to workshop to, to figure that out. You hey open up that book, understand it, celebrate it, uh, in, a, an authentically and authentic and beautiful way. And, uh, you're, you're going to see some, some good fruits happening. Yeah. Okay. Let's shift to the liturgical movement itself. Um, in the Pope's recent letter, he, he quotes Romano a couple times and, um, you know, it's very significant. We hear about this liturgical movement, liturgical movement. Um, I got a buddy who's a huge fan of Peter Kwasniewski. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he always sends me all of his, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He always sends me all, you know, the new, what is it called? New liturgical movement stuff. Yeah. So I get people emailing me out of Ramus bulletin stuff and new liturgical movement stuff and then angry people on Twitter. So it's fun. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting. So I, originally I'm trained in catechetics, theology, evangelization from Franciscan. So, you know, my master's degree is theology and Christian ministry. You had to take all these pastoral classes and whatnot. So there's the catechetical movement, which started going strong. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was going strong in the about the same time. And then the charismatic movement was completely separate, going strong. Then they essentially merged in the 40s and began produce 40s and 50s and began producing literature that was deeply interwoven into aspects of, of Vatican II, but really after Vatican II in terms of catechetics in, in the 60s and there's a lot of that stuff. And then there's this liturgical movement. So what, what, why are there so many movements going on? And uh, especially the liturgical movement, I mean, like just reading chapter, I think it's chapter one, right, where you kind of introduce the liturgical movements and just some of the key flavor. That was so eye-opening to me, worth the price of admission for the book. It's so eye-opening to me because you're like, okay, there's so much going on in just the first 20 years of kind of Guardini and 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 others. So, could you give us like a quick crash course on the on the good folks of the liturgical movement? <laughs> yeah, quick one. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, maybe the, the first question: you know, Why was there a liturgical movement and a biblical movement and a catechetical movement and a charismatic movement? And all these things. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, for me, is is more of a difficult question to answer, but I suppose it comes down to is people in the 20th century realized something wasn't working. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm sort of a sappy, romantic guy who thinks, oh, if I were alive in the 1950s, I'd have just been living in, you know, my little cul-de-sac America and everything was just great then. Well, apparently it wasn't. You know? <laughs> so uh, they realized something had to change, you know, the they say the, the the 20th century. I mean, look what modernism gained for the 20th century. 
more corpses than any other century combined. Okay, it, it wasn't working out. It wasn't working out. All right, so we have these these movements, and the liturgical movement really started to begin with uh, Dom Prosper Garanger, who was a French priest. Um, you're gonna have to cut me off. I get too <laughs> too windy on this. No, that's a household name. Household name. Prosper Garanger. So he, he wrote this book called uh, "The Liturgical Year." It's Therese of Lisieux's parents, uh, Therese, uh, or no, Zelly and. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Martin, let's call them, would read to the, <laughs> to the kids, right? So uh, he was, uh, 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 he opened up this abbey in Salem, France, like it re- recovered it out of the French Revolution and opened it up again um, and became a Benedictine. He was uh, ordained as a Dawson priest. So worked to restore the liturgy with Rome because this is uh, what's going on in France is all these various, what they called Gallican liturgies, right? So this yeah. is 250 years after the Council of Trent, right? And the dioceses in France still aren't using the Tridentine books, right? So we get bent out of shape 50 years after the Second Vatican Council that there's still, you know, it's still not all solved. Well, this is 250, 300 years after the Council of Trent that... Uh, the, the, but, <laughs> but they didn't have Twitter. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. So yeah, all these Gallican missiles. Uh, and so what Garanger wanted to do was reestablish the Roman Rite. He said he was ordained a priest a couple of years and he was a chaplain to some religious from Rome. And he says, it was there that I was introduced to the Roman rite. I'm like, wait a second. You didn't even know what the Roman rite was? So, you know, at the same time, right, you have the First Vatican Council, uh, 1869, and papal infallibility. So there's this movement of ultramontanism and everything being drawn more closely back to Rome. And this is what Garanger did, is to rediscover and open up and practice the great riches of the Roman tradition. And that's kind of what got the liturgical movement uh, rolling. Mm. But generally, I think, I won't go through all these figures, but I think a helpful way to look at the liturgical movement is from Garanger up until about, I'd say, 1950. The movement in liturgical movement was moving the people. It was about changing people so that they could have the proper dispositions to enter into this mystery okay? because they weren't doing that. Yeah. Right. You talked about active participation before people weren't <laughs> actively participating. They were doing other things, you know, not bad things, but when the treasures of Christ's open side starts pouring forth from the altar, it's time to focus in on that and not peripheral things. After Mediatra Day, which is uh, encyclical by Pius XII in 1947, there became a shift in the term movement. And it was sort of less on the emphasis of moving people into the mystery and more on moving the rites. That medium that we talked about before that manifests the glory of God and makes accessible that glory to us fallen and finite creatures. And so in about the the 50s, you start to see more moving and changing of the rituals, right? So restored Holy Week in 1950, experimentally uh, restored Easter Vigil kind of permanently uh, in 1955. A lot of the rituals, you know, blessings and sacramentals would could incorporate a lot more of the vernacular and things like that. The breviary was changing a lot uh, during these times too. So I, I sort of think that the two sort of main phases in the liturgical movement is the first 1850 to 1950, moving the people. The second starting to move the rights from 1950 to 2000. 
And see, and this is what Pope Francis talks about now. Uh, We're out of this phase now of changing rights. Okay, we're not going to rethink that. It's time to move hearts. It's time to move people. And so it's kind of, we're kind of in a period now of that early liturgical movement about leading people into the mystery that is contained in the right. So anyway. Hmm. That's a great summary. And I start to think about, um, especially when it comes to, okay, now it's time for the movement to talk more about rights where do you where do we go when you read like I sent you that catechism quote where it's um you know not even the supreme authority of the church can can mess with the liturgy right and and yet we did pretty heavily from you know from the tridentine mass to sacrosanctum concilium and then sacrosanctum concilium to the work of concilium and to the publication of of the of the new order of the mass, right? Yeah. Like there were a lot of truncations and deletions and, um, you know, whole new Eucharistic prayers added Eucharistic prayer number two. Um, there were things that were done that the church says basically in the catechism that we can't do or that we can only do very cautiously or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then when I read the thing that killed me was reading on, on Adoramus's website, Pope Paul, the sixth, right before the launch of the new mass, that letter to, um, I don't know if it was the Italian bishops, but right before Advent, when it's when the new mass is going to happen in Italy in the first time. And he just lists all these things that are going to like, yeah, well, a lot of people are going to hate this. <laughs> when he goes through that whole list and he's like, why are we doing this? The reason might seem banal, but it's to evangelize people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, evangelization is kind of a jam. And I'm looking around and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what the church would look like with the Latin mass as the only mass. Mm-hmm. You know, would it would it be ten times smaller? Would it be ten times bigger? Yeah. Like I don't know, but I do know that no one, that very few people are evangelized within the context of the Novus Ordo Mass. In fact, half of the people that I know that become Catholic, they become Catholic because of the liturgy. I'm down here in Texas, this is Baptist country, right? Where they're used to, you know, the band leading a bunch of songs, opening prayer from the stage. Hey, put your children over here. You know, the non-denominational kind of mega church worship. And then the pastor gives a 45 minute to one hour, you know, sermon. And then we wrap up with a couple songs and go home. And then they come to the liturgy and they're like, oh my goodness. Now, you know, Scott Hahn's famous words. Now I know why I have a body, Mm -hmm. right? Like stand, sit, kneel. Catholics kind of hate the stand, sit, kneel, but the Protestants that I know, they came, yes, they did. They came into a liturgical action, it's in their own language. They can understand it. You know, there's, you know, whatever with all the changes, it's simplified. There's not a lot of repetition, but like, I don't think the mass is a key evangelizer. Right. And Paul, Paul, the sixth, that was at least in that one document. Oh, I can't even pronounce it, but sure. You know what I'm talking about. I think it was um, a couple Wednesday. I think those were Wednesday audiences. Uh, Oh, right. Right. uh, Right on the, the, the edge of the new. Yeah. Right on the cusp. You know, I, 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 I go about it this way is that the mass is not meant to be an instrument of the first evangelization, agentis or something. But it is a central piece, and it was for John Paul II, uh, of new evangelization. Okay, so if, if whether it's good old-fashioned or new evangelization, they all begin with this encounter with Jesus. And what I think Paul VI in that audience you mentioned and uh, John Paul II, I mean, where for a baptized Catholic is the most privileged place to come face to face with Jesus? 
It's in the mass. Okay? Now, you have to know how to recognize him, right? I mean, people 2,000 years ago didn't recognize him. Uh, John Paul describes the rosary as sitting at the school of Mary and learning to recognize the face of Jesus because she knows what he looks like. She's going to show us what he looks mm. like. So even the mass requires almost like a great, uh, you know, you look at works of art. Somebody has to teach you how to, to see why the Mona Lisa is the most famous. I mean, because you look at it, what, really? I don't know. I guess. Okay. Well, you need a sort of an art appreciation to learn to recognize the radiantly beautiful face of Jesus in the mass. Now, so for the obligation of priests and ministers is to make the mass look like Jesus and not like me. Okay. I'm not, yeah. I'm ugly yeah. and I'm not going to save anybody. So I need to sort of decrease. So Jesus, you do have a very impressive beard. <laughs> I have to say your beard is exceedingly impressive. <laughs> well, thanks. I, I, you know, probably Jesus is a better, I don't know. I, mean, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I doubt his mustache <laughs> flared as much as yours. <laughs> so, but you know, so the liturgy does play a, a, a very key role in new evangelization. And this, uh, Mike, I think is, you know, what the, what the liturgical renewal was about, you know, so, I mean, Trent changed things about the liturgy, right? The liturgy yeah. looked different before and after Trent. Okay. Uh, now you, well, let's go back to this line from, uh, speaking of the catechism, St. Justin Martyr describes the, the mass of the ages, in the catechism from year 155 go back and read that and you could say right. yep 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 i recognize all of those things so the, the changes in the mass whether it's in the 8th century or the 16th century or the 20th century yes the uh, uh the elements have changed the essentials have not see but this is what people argue about when it comes to the mass. So we're not trying to improve God's work in the mass. We can count on that. Um, and even less so about what we do in the mass. What's, it, what's the debatable point is this ritual, mm -hmm. which ritual both does justice to God and to us, which ritual more clearly and authentically manifests the divine glory of God and at the same time allows me to access it. Okay. So uh, probably the thinking was in 1950 that the rights of the church, uh, well, I mean, Pius X said this in 1913. I mean, he was working on revising the Missal and the Breviary in 1910 and in 1913. And he uses this term, uh, we've started, but many uh, many years will have to pass before the the rites of the church can be purified of their squalidness, and that they can radiate the truth of the liturgy again. This is Pius X, you know, more than a hundred years ago, right? So I think what some of the what the liturgical movement figures were thinking, and the fathers of the council were, how can we? reform the the rites so that we can come face to face with Jesus again because there were too many elements of the mass whether it's the language whether it's you know ritual add-ons whether it's uh, omissions that have disappeared over the years whether it's additions that have come in over the centuries that have obscured the essence okay that's what they were thinking and i think that's a good thought now some might say that, whoa, <laughs> hang on, you, you kind of give us a really stripped down model, okay? And that, um, that a lot of those things that, that 
made the ritual transcendent and otherworldly, silence and things like that, and out of the ordinary, whether in the book or in practice, I've gone. Okay. So wouldn't it be great, Mike, if we had like a, a mutual enrichment, <laughs> as they used to call it, <laughs> where we can have, you know, the best of both, sort of the sacrality of Although I have to say this too, I mean, I'm, again, I'm a sucker for what I think my, in my mind and my dreams 1950s was like. I mean, there were problems with the celebration of the Mass in the 1950s and 40s and 30s. It's not this, you know, sort of golden age of uh, celebrations. But still, if we could have that transcendent element that is associated with the preconciliar liturgy, with the sort of accessibility that is provided in the postconciliar rites, we might be on to something. So you got the you got the ordinary. <laughs> well, you know why? Why? Okay, you can answer this. Why do you? That's why you go there, right? Yeah, exactly. It is absolutely why I go there. Okay, and, and it's so funny because, like, I, I had this four hour long interview with Father Fletcher, and two hours of it was me basically saying, "Convince me I can honor my Irish ancestors by going to this English thing, <laughs> where you literally read four prayers written by." what's his name Cramner or mm-hmm. Oliver Cromwell like how do I deal with this heretic who killed Irishmen mm-hmm. and go there you know with my grandfather not spinning over in his grave and it was funny because he's also an Oklahoman like me and uh but he's like fifth generation or sixth generation Oklahoman right and he was like yeah you know as Episcopalian who became a Catholic priest you know he's like I you know I I thought like what is this ordinary thing it's going to be the most pretentious like everyone drinking out of tea or, you know, tiny little teacups and stuff like that. And then, and then, you know, he's like, you really do have to realize that the, the ordinary, it tries to capture the Catholic tradition at the time of the reformation updated with the new lectionary, you know, all this stuff. And I, I, he just said something that was so beautiful. He said, and these four prayers that were added into the Anglican liturgy, were things that Anglican converts to Catholicism said, you know, like the prayer of humble access, which I am head over heels for. I love these prayers. But the prayer of humble access right before you receive Holy Communion, he said, it wasn't just that these were written by a terrible heretic. He said, but these were prayers that people pointed to and said, these prayers are why I want to become Catholic because the fullness of them is present in there. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. So the more I, I felt like, okay, like I can see elements of the new mass in this liturgy. And I can see elements of the Tridentine Mass in this liturgy. Um, you know, the priest always jokes that, you know, I, one of the reasons why I keep my boys sane is because I have to keep taking smoke breaks, meaning break from the incense smoke. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, it used to be you had to go outside to get the smoke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so here. Uh, We've got to pack a uh, pack of cigarettes before they're done with uh, uh, the high mass. Um <laughs> But it's funny because they the bathrooms because it says everything's a temporary structure, so the bathrooms are like porta potties on the other side, so they have to sprint to the other side. I'm like, all oh, their energy, it's it's good getting it out right now. But you know, like I do feel that way when I sit there. I feel, and again, I don't. I, I hear the language that I'm saying. I feel all right. So it's about me and my disposition. But here's the funny thing. So I, I'm not worried about the liturgy. I think this is why so many people just defaulted to the Latin mass was because it's like, well, I'm not worried about the liturgy anymore. All these crazy priests with Pope Francis saying, right. What it would say, the wild creativity and all this stuff. Like 
it's not even wild. I wish it were wild creativity. I wish it were creative. It's like the most boring, <laughs> random. I call it the iron law of vague sentimentality. You know, it's like, hey, here's the thing. Will it make a, a, a middle-aged person go, huh, that was nice. Well, then it must be in there and you must never take it out of the list. You know, like that's what we do. And that's what I see all the time. That's what drives me insane is like these silly little add-ons that don't do anything except a couple of people go, oh, that was nice. You know, and then I go to the ordinary liturgy, and it was really funny because there's a lot of people from my church that go to that local parish. There's a lot of people at my church that are mad that I even go there, and uh, even though it's just occasionally. <laughs> and uh, you can always tell my parishioners from the people who are brought up in this liturgy because, like, when they did the Roe v. Wade, like, hey, this has been passed. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. They start abrupt. <laughs> they start applauding, and the priest is just like, no. We don't applaud in the middle of the sacred liturgy. <laughs> no, stop that right now. So it's funny, but like, yeah, my experience, when I actually read Sacrosanctum Concilium, I see it. I see it unfolding in a rite that had to borrow from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and all that stuff more than I do in, and I, I don't want to make anyone mad, but more than I do in my own parish even when my most strict priest is celebrating. Mm-hmm. Right. And to me, that's, that's the confusion. That's why the trads are all mad. It's like, you, okay, I'm reading Sacrosanctum Concilium. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You know, and it, this is the part that breaks my heart. And then you, then you find out about Bugnini and all this stuff and Concilium. And like when an American goes to Europe and they see what churches used to look like, and then mm-hmm. they come here and they're like, Oh really? Yeah. Right. Like, why can't we have the nice things? Why can't we have nice things? Then you find out that we smashed all the nice things and sold them off. Anywho, now I'm getting ranty. (laughs) Help me. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Your beard is my only hope. Oh, boy. We're in trouble then. But um, no, I think uh, the priest has so much. He has to shepherd the people and head the people. Um, and a lot depends on him, but it's not just him. It's, it's, I think it is a, a generational thing. And I, I think that, so I've worked in the Dawson liturgy office for almost 25 years, something I never, I never planned to do, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but hey, yeah, it's, it has been a pretty good, pretty good gig. Um, but I mean, the liturgies now are better than they were 20 years ago and yeah. 10 years ago and five years ago. And, uh, so the, the, we are kind of re- returning to, I think the, the mind, uh, of the council on that, you know, and even the book that is in the sacristy today, you know, however it got to be there contains the riches and wealth. Now, some people will disagree with that, but I mean, it, it can, and it's meant to be celebrated in a traditional way that allows contemporary access to it. And these things that you encounter at your, uh, uh, at, at the ordinary at, uh, parish are all in there and more and more of them are being pull, uh, pulled out to use uh, more and more often. So again, I mentioned, uh, uh, I mean, we, we sing antiphons at this little tiny church in rural Wisconsin. We're singing scriptural antiphons at communion that uh, we do this as a matter of course at priest gatherings, you know, that, that we're, it, it's just, the tide is changing. And, you know, and even, 
again, I, I'm starting to see this more and more too. Well, that, you know, well, the council said this, but then they handed it over to this committee to, to rework and it got hijacked and things like that. And, yeah. I, you know, um, I'm not, that's a pretty a, dominant narrative out there. Well, it, it is. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not one who, I'm not a pr- proponent of that though. I mean, okay. uh, maybe probably, you know, for 2000 years, uh, I mean, Anabali Bunini was not the first guy to come along and be like, I mean, you know, his reputation uh, is, I mean, uh, the, the sausage has been made, being made for millennia on this. And the, the real money behind the liturgy, the real power behind it is the church. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be naive or Pollyanna or anything like this, but if the legitimate authority says, this is our books, then my response is, okay. If you want to change those tomorrow, my response tomorrow will be, okay, we'll use those books then. So, all right, maybe it was, it's been a, a bumpy road to get here. And maybe there's, there's bumps today and there'll be bumps tomorrow. But um, church, you tell me what to do. I'm working for you and I'm going to do it with my whole heart. So, anyway. Yeah, yes. Okay, so can I go through like a grab bag as we we round the one okay. hour mark, and I'll, we'll start winding down. Um, antiphons. So uh, we started implementing antiphons here, and I think it couldn't have come at a better time to actually sing the antiphons at the mass, um, because with the liturgy of the hours, this is just as a layperson, this is what I'm noticing. So Word on Fire releases this liturgy of the hours thing. Now we're on month two, month three will come out. August will come out. Um, I already got mine in the mail. But um, more and more lay people at my parish um, are starting to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. And one of the things you notice about Liturgy of the Hours, besides it's 90% the Psalms, is antiphons. Mm -hmm. So once you involve antiphons at Mass, all these people who pray the Liturgy of the Hours, once we started just one Sunday doing the antiphon, they were like, hey, that's like the Liturgy of the Hours. Oh, the Liturgy of the Hours is really a liturgy. Like that was <laughs> like, even though we call it that, it's like a different thing. But now it's like, oh no, this is liturgy. This is actual liturgical worship throughout the, oh wait, time itself is now becoming holy because we're doing this throughout the day. Like, it's so funny, but even though I know it, I didn't know it. You know what I mean? Right. And so we began doing the antiphons, um, you know, the, the, the entrance antiphon, the communion antiphon. So the question becomes um, for a lot of people who've never experienced this are we required to do antiphons? And if not, why not? You know, like it's such an easy bridge into liturgical prayer and, and Mm -hmm. praying with the Psalms just as an individual with scripture. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. I mean, the church prays the Bible, the church prays the scripture and, and however great a song by, you know, Marty Haugen or John Henry Cardinal Newman, or even Tom Aquinas might be those that King David wrote like 3000 years ago, you know, sort of have a primacy. And so do you have to use them? No. But if you open up the general instruction of the Roman Missal to find out what your options are for singing at the entrance, they're all, the first three are antiphons with psalms, antiphons with psalms, antiphons with psalms, or a hymn. Okay. And uh, it works very much like a responsorial psalm, if you know, listeners aren't familiar with you know how that would work. But, uh, you know, part of this uh, is, Prior to the council, you had the, the the sung mass and the solemn mass where everything had to be sung that could or the recited mass or low mass 
where you couldn't sing anything except you could sing hymns while the priest was saying certain prayers or after certain prayers like that. And so kind of the introduction of non-liturgical texts into the Mass is a low-mass phenomenon that we have managed to, to carry over. And yeah, so trying to restore, you know, the Bible at these, at these places is, uh, uh, it's, it, it's getting better every year. Do you have to do it? No, but, um, this is, this is the church's tradition. This is on the church's books today. This is her clear, uh, 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 um, preference. So take a look at it. Okay. See, and I think, so, I think, Mark, question, sorry, just yeah. to, I mean, when we talk about, you know, we need to actually go back and celebrate what the books say, this is a perfect example. Because I think a lot of people would say, well, we do that. I mean, we do that all the time. What do you mean we don't, we're not celebrating according to the missile that's there? Well, this is a perfect example. If you can go mm-hmm. the whole year without hearing antiphons or chant in your mass, then you're missing a, a significant part of what the book is putting before you. Yeah, it was really cool when my buddy Josh Blakesley was doing a Steubenville Youth Conference mass, right? It's a big mass, praise and worship, charismatic. And then as the priests are getting their saboria, because only the priests distribute Holy Communion, as they're getting the saborium pass out to him, he leads the antiphon. And I was like, ah, nice, nice. That brought that in there. It was really cool. Um, okay, next question. Is there a difference between hymns and songs? Hymns and Songs, songs. Uh, if there yeah, is not psalms, no yeah, p, just yeah. an s. Uh, if uh, I think from a liturgical standpoint, no. I think a musicologist would say a hymn is like a eight syllable, eight syllable, eight syllable, eight syllable repeat. Uh, but a song can be sort of one of these through composed, beginning to mm. end, uh, you know, different uh, ref- different elements like that. That's what I think the difference is. But when you read in church documents, at least it it doesn't uh, have that distinction in mind, as far as I okay. can tell. Contus or something like that. What they would say. Should the church make? Uh, a, should parishes make a bigger effort to distinguish? religious or devotional music from liturgical music. Absolutely. See, because again, this is the, when, when you've abandoned a devotional life, then the mass has to do all of the work. Okay. That is the best. That is incredible. Well done. (laughs) So, so, (laughs) and it's not supposed to do that. It's not meant to do that. It's not in its nature to do that. So then we incorporate things that it's not meant to do, like devotional music, devotional actions, devotional prayers, and other things like that. And now all of a sudden, this mass, which is the most privileged place where the the the, the transfigured Christ breaks into our sad and dark world, is now getting a little bit cloudy because mm. we're putting things in. They're good things. They just don't belong there. They belong somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the church should. So should we where – where would we turn? Where would you say would be a good place for a priest listening to this? we got a lot of priests that listen to this. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Catching foxes is a, is a train wreck. But um, <laughs> we have a lot of priests that listen, and one of the things that we ask is like, okay, I want to be a faithful son of the church. Where do I buy that book? Where do I – how do I – like where's a book filled with good, solid, religious – hymns for mass that would involve maybe the antiphons and all that stuff or also musical resources. I I think uh, um, the best thing out there is uh, Adam Bartlett's source and summit missile source and Mm. summit missile. Is Uh, that the one with the angel on the front? It's one of the angel on the front. Yeah. (laughs) And so Adam worked for a 
worked with focus for a very long time, right? So mm. I've only made one focus. Uh, uh, it was a uh, Seek conference once. Mike, you oh, probably yeah. go to these things all the time. I don't know. All right, so here's a focus event. It's probably not a lot different from Life Team, right? And it's just like that story you mentioned uh, before is they are singing antiphons, okay? Their yeah. devotional time is devotional. Their liturgical time is liturgical. And everybody's the better for it. So this Adam Bartlett Source and Summit material is accessible. It's beautiful. It's faithful. It's authentic. It has the antiphons and psalms. And it also has a good collection of traditional Catholic hymnody. That's what I nice. do. Nice. Nice. Okay. Okay. I'm picking up what you're putting down. So uh, for people to, so the funny story about the angel, I don't know if everyone knows that, but he was working at a publisher where they took the Mormon angel and it was, I guess someone just Googled angel and put it on the cover of their Catholic hymnal. And then when everyone started pointing it out, they're like, nah, well, and they went to press with it. Like I was at a church that had that. And so he thought it'd be funny to slap the good old what was it uh gabriel on the cover like a good catholic yeah <laughs> so funny have you read or familiar with um the document from the usccb on hymnody yes. on hymns uh critiquing from a theological content i have yeah what, what do you think about that like to me the thing that th this is what kills me so it's not that like for me the liturgical war is more interesting when it comes to culture right like the living tradition people living you know whatever and to me it's like what's interesting about the USCCB's Congregation for the Faith or whatever it's called scrutinized like 1,500 hymns and songs that are in Catholic hymnals and found a great majority. They use like eight criteria. A great majority of them are heterodox or straight-up heresy. Yet these people, like their, their books are approved. They're on lists. They're sold as Catholic publishers who have staff theologians. How does that happen? That's the thing that I'm more interested in. Hmm. Anything? How does it? How does it get that bad? That's more of a catechetical, catechetical question. I'll leave that one for you, Mike. I don't know how that happens. It's a mystery. I have. No, I don't know. I don't know how it happens. Yeah. See, the, I mean, the, I, one day I was sitting down with a praise and worship musician. We were at an event, and two musicians were arguing over the song "Reckless Love." I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, so the the song is um, about God's reckless love, and there's an argument in the evangelical world. How can you say that God's love is reckless? You know, and someone read the definition. You know, uncaring about consequences, blah blah blah. And the artist defended it, saying, "No, it's reckless in the sense of God's love for me is constant, and in my life, it doesn't matter. Right? Like God loves me. You know, whatever." And these two musicians are arguing, and I'm just sitting off to the side because I thought this was funny. And the, the one guy said, you know, at the end of the day, what does it matter? They're just songs kid, people sing. It's no big deal. And the one musician was like, well, I think it's a pretty big deal when we sing it at mass. And then I slammed my hands down, and I was like, it's a really big, insert expletive here, deal. That's how the Aryan heresy was spread. It was spread through freaking sea shanties. Like the Wellerman song, which is really popular right now with my kiddos. Uh, like it was spread through sea shanties. <laughs> like it was spread through music because they become portable catechisms, right? And when you're singing these songs, like, yeah, God's love is reckless. It's emotional. It's all about me. God has emotions. And then all of a sudden they're all processed theologians who believe that God is not uh, utterly simple or something uh, in their metaphysics. But the idea of this, like this matters so greatly and then you find like to me this is the problem this is why i understand our people are like you know what the last uh 60 years of the church delete 
if they're if the people can't even get their hymnody together, like what else are they ruining in our lives? And that's where like Catholics who become, you know, the apologetics movement of the nineties awoke a lot of Catholics to like a lot of lay people to theology. Like that's why I studied theology was because my parents studied apologetics and they would argue about biblical defense of the Eucharist in broken air, Oklahoma, surrounded by a bunch of people who were anti-Catholic, not everyone, but a lot of people. Ku Klux Klan used to burn crosses in front of my church. So like opposition siege mentality, we were all doing apologetics. I was at the age of in third grade, right? You had to to survive, but that led to theology and that led to catechetics. And that led to a greater understanding of the laity being like, you priests aren't, you don't even know the faith. And now we're like, um, how do we, uh, not in some heaven light years away. Why are we singing this in the, in the mass? Yeah. Yeah. Well, agreed. Agreed. A big a part of that problem. Uh, the solution to that problem is to go back to 3000 year old scripture. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. So, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I got all these axes to grind. I'm like so angsty. I just need to go to counseling, but I just keep doing more interviews with people who deal with the liturgy. Um, another thing that I would say, and this kind of, we can wrap up. Um, so reading the reciprocity between faith and the sacraments and the sacramental economy. What a great, what a great line. And in reading uh, JP or um, Pope Francis here, um, Romano Guardini writes, uh, here there is an outline, the first task of the work of liturgical formation. Man must become once again capable of symbols. Uh, this is a responsibility for all, this is the Pope's words, for all, for ordained ministers and faithful alike. The task is not easy because modern man has become illiterate, no longer able to read symbols. It is almost as if their existence is not even suspected. And in six reasons, I think I lay out about six reasons why modern man divorces faith from the sacraments. One of them was an inability to perceive efficacious signs, to understand mm -hmm. symbolic reality, that mm -hmm. symbols are both performative and cognitive. They communicate lived action and knowledge and all this stuff. And modern man reduces them just a collection of loose facts. Postmodern man emphasizes more the performative, but really only sees them in their emotional content. And when I read that like one paragraph summary, I was like, Oh yeah, this is the liturgical wars right here in a very big way, right? Like in, in, at least in conservative circles, right? Like let's get the emotional content. No, people need to feel it. We're architects of emotion versus, you know, all this other stuff. And it's like, we don't even understand symbols, right? So where do we go from here into helping modern man recover a symbolic or efficacious signs, right? To recover this symbolic world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where to begin. I mean, but if you think about the word symbolic, somebody says that's yeah. symbolic. Most people hear, well, it's, it's empty. It's, it's fake. It's false. There's, it means there's nothing. And it means just the opposite. Uh, it, it, all of Catholic symbols are full. And, um, but you're right. The, the liturgy wars are over the ritual symbol system because the, the, the symbols used, the words, the gestures, the actions, the music, the calendar, all those are symbolic elements. Uh, in the new liturgy are perceived as too thin, too anemic, too cognitive, um, and the preconciliar symbols are too confusing. You know? But I think, I, yeah, that's a great paragraph, is, is coming to recognize that you are homo symbolificus. We are symbolic 
beings. Uh, it's, an anthropo- it's an anthropological question. Uh, and theological, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the symbol of God the Father, the perfect sacramental expression of God the Father. And yeah, to to not appreciate the symbolic nature of the liturgy, understood fully. No, no not in a we're understanding that word symbol properly is uh, is essential. So, yeah, I mean, it, so for example, the liturgical institute or Adoramus Bulletin or whatever. I mean, it's 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 a sacramental approach to things. Uh, and see, in this way, you know, anybody who has eyes or ears or noses who can sense outward things, little kids can do this. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to work for the church. If you can sense things, and the ministers are giving you things to sense incense and beautiful music and beautiful architecture. I mean, this is the. I was, just one last line on this. And, uh, yeah. I was on a retreat and somebody pointed out this term, you know, when, when the magi or when the shepherds, I don't know if it's the magi or the shepherds leave Mary and it says she pondered all these things in her heart. Somebody pointed out to me, the, the Greek word for that is she symbolized all of these things in her heart. What she meant is she's putting the pieces together, hmm. these angels and these shepherds and this Gabriel and my cousin Elizabeth and these strange men from the East, she's piecing them all together. And that's what symbols do. Diabolane is the opposite. It divides the diabolic, the symbolic puts together. And that's what God is doing for us in Jesus, putting us back together with himself. That's what the liturgy is doing to us in its rites is put connecting us to God once again. So it's essential. It is what I, uh, one person came to me, uh, I've told this story before in this show, so pardon me, listeners, but we had a visiting priest who's now a parochial vicar, Father David, and he was, uh, all of our priests got COVID, so they had to, they couldn't celebrate, so he came up and celebrated all of our masses. And I don't know if you know this, but, uh, or I don't know if you know this, in at my church, we have dropped more hosts because of receiving Holy Communion in the hand with masks than, you know, in one year than all the years combined beforehand. It, it's a, it's a travesty. And then people, uh, people have stolen the host, you know, in my diocese is where the tabernacle was stolen, all that stuff. Um, you know, it, it's nuts. It's nuts. People target my church to steal the Eucharist. So we're trying to do all this stuff. And our Eucharistic ministers are like more on board with grabbing people who don't consume the host immediately. But one of the things that the document talks about is stressing these symbols. So one day the host drops, father David's giving communion he immediately stops communion. He kneels down and purifies the area as reverently as possible. He's praying while he's doing it. You know, all these things. A woman came up to me with tears in her eyes. She said, I've never believed in the Eucharist more than when the host fell and the way he treated the Eucharist. It happened again next week, and the deacon just picked it up, consumed it, and just stepped and just kept doing communion without purifying the area and all that stuff. And someone was like, wait, that's wrong, man. Mm. <laughs> it became like, because they saw the previous witness. And so one of the things that I said is, uh, and I've gotten some pushback from this, but I really do think it's true. Like, if we say this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, ever, the host, a consecrated host is the total Christ, right? And one visible crumb is the total Christ. Why have we... I mean, like, think of, like, symbolically putting together all of these things. I'm not going to let a single crumb fall to the floor with a communion plate. I grew up, we had communion plates. We didn't have kneelers or anything, but we just had communion plates. 
And as an altar boy, I was trained, you know, mouth, hand, mouth, hand, you know, going back and forth. To me, nothing screams more Eucharistic reverence that then becomes commonplace, like an extraordinary, I will not let one crumb fall to the floor than the use of this. And then you find in the in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it says their use will not be abrogated or, you know, whatever, gotten rid of. And I'm like, but I don't, I haven't been to a single church outside of these like tratty places that use them. Like, don't you think that that's one of the, of course, I would go full bore and have that orientum and communion at the rail and all that stuff. But like, that is a profound way of symbolically saying what we believe, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, you I know. think what, um, uh, you know, when the, that Pew study came out that talked about yeah. how many of the percentage of Catholics who believe in the real presence and, uh, uh, you know, maybe rightly said, you know, it's because our catechesis is, is poor. It's our cat. It's a catechetical problem. And it is, but, uh, other, you know, uh, liturgy types came up and said, Oh, it's not just a catechetical problem because right. when people come to mass and they can see how the priests and the ministers, uh, treat the blessed sacrament, uh, that speaks more volumes than what they may or may not be reading in, in a bulletin or something like that. So I think your point is absolutely right, Mike. I mean, when the people see priests and ministers who act like this sacrament is uh, uh, cannot contain, even though it does, but it can't contain the, the, the glory, which is God. I mean, that's going to teach more people. That's going to revive the Eucharist in, in uh, better ways than better textbooks and things like that. But certainly it's an yeah. integral thing, isn't it? But, ah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you, your work that you're doing at, at Aramis Liturgical Institute, your 80-person parish, I'm sure, is uh, is saving souls, right? Right, Sanctifying hearts. So thank you so much uh, for both you and your beard for coming on this show. It is it is a magnificent thing. So well, uh, <laughs> Thanks, Mike. It's my pleasure to be with you. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. 